Good morning, men. It's good to be with you. This is a great turnout here for Steak on Saturday morning. It's good to connect with uh, Admiral Kirk Camp. Uh, we know each other back uh, many times when we were both active duty in the Navy, so it's good to connect again. Um, if you have a Bible within, I hope you do. If not, there's some in the back. I want to open up to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. <clears throat> be praying for, uh, for Matt. I understand he just came back from Bolivia, a little bit under the weather. Uh, but God has uh, sustained him to bring him here. And uh, I, I also just came back from a three-month sabbatical. Uh, the pastors and, uh, and elders at Emmanuel Bible Church give us a three-month sabbatical for every seven years you're on uh, staff and ministry. And I've actually been there now for 13, but uh, this was a good time to take it. So uh, I don't know if you do that here at Cornerstone, but this, uh, for your elders and pastors, this is a great thing to do for your pastors. You just send them off and get refreshed and allow God to pour back into them, because a lot of times all you're doing is giving as a pastor. So hopefully uh, you have an opportunity to do that for your pastoral staff here as well. Back in 2004, I was speaking at Emmanuel Bible Church on Sunday morning. Uh, we do a Memorial Day weekend celebration where we recognize all of the uh, military veterans, active duty, and we ask them to wear uniforms, and we spend some time praying over them, praying over their families, uh, obviously, Memorial Day weekend, we remember those that have paid the ultimate price for our freedom. Um, but that, that year, 2004, I was the speaker on Sunday morning. It was also the year, you may remember, that the World War II Memorial was opening up in Washington, D.C. If you have never been to that, I really encourage you to get down there and take a look at that. That was the weekend, Memorial Day weekend, 2004, that they dedicated the World War II Memorial. So I, I really wanted to include something in my message that weekend uh, about the World War II veterans. My dad had been a CB serving in Okinawa during World War II. My father-in-law flew B-17s as a bombardier, two missions on D-Day. Um, I really am invested in that generation, and so I wanted to go down and interact with as many as I could. So the Wednesday prior to that weekend, I had most of my message for that Sunday completed, but I went down Wednesday to fill in the blank that I had purposely left in my message. And I went down to meet with some of these World War II veterans. Many of them had come into town. By the way, they did not ask for this memorial. They went off and served their country. Um, they saved us. You and I would be speaking a, a whole different language right now were it not for that World War II generation. But they literally saved us. And, and they came back and reintegrated in society, asked for nothing, and they went back to work. Uh, but the, the, the American people uh, embraced them and built this memorial. And so many of them did come back in just to see what the hubbub was about. You couldn't miss these World War II veterans that Wednesday when I went down there. Because they were not traveling alone. Each one of them had an entourage because they, of their age. They were in their late 80s and early 90s. They were traveling probably with their wives if they were still alive. Children that were assisting them or medical professionals that were assisting them. It was not hard to find them. You could see them, a whole group of them walking around. So I simply went up. I had a clipboard and a pen. I went up to them and stuck my, put my hand out and said, Hi, my name is Tom Joyce. I'm a retired Navy captain. I'm now pastoring in a church in Northern Virginia, not too far from here. I'm preaching a message this Sunday, and I explain what we do on Memorial Day weekend. And I said, what is it you want my congregation to know about your service to our country serving in World War II? And I began to write. And what's interesting is as these men, I only integrated with men, I interacted with men there. Uh, as these men opened up, 
you could see that some of their families had not heard of anything that they had had spoken to, they were speaking to me about. They had never heard of this before. Their wives were listening more carefully. Their children were engaged. Their grandkids were kind of, you know, huddling around just to hear what was going on. I just was writing as fast as I could. And then after a couple minutes, I noticed with every man that I was writing, I began to do this, to listen to their stories of what they had done. Friends, comrades that they had lost, things that they had seen and never spoke about, and frankly, they don't want to see them ever again. Tom Brokaw wrote a book about them. You know the book. It's called The Greatest Generation. They are indeed the greatest generation. And Tom Brokaw's book is is just filled with stories of heroism and sadness and sacrifice and great victory as those men and women recount their involvement in this global struggle that threatened the United States' existence. In my last tour before I retired, I was working at the Pentagon, and every day I'd go out for a run, sometimes across the Memorial Bridge, but many times up around the Iwo Jima, the Marine Corps Memorial. And to honor my brothers and sisters in my sister service, the Marine Corps, I would stop up there in that grassy knoll right in front of the Marine Corps Memorial, and I'd do some push-ups and sit-ups just to honor my brothers and sisters in the Marine Corps, Semper Fi. And emblazoned, chiseled right there in the, in the granite at the base of that memorial it is an expression that literally describes the greatest generation, the World War II veterans. It says, when uncommon valor was a common virtue. When uncommon valor was a common virtue. That's the greatest generation. We're losing the greatest generation by more than 500 every single day. It used to be 1,300 every single day, but we've lost so many. 16 million of them served in World War II, representing you and I in shores all around the world. 16 million, there's less than 800,000 of them remaining. We're losing them at 500 every single day. And literally, the greatest generation is passing the mantle of leadership to us. The greatest generation is passing the mantle of leadership to every one of us. And here's the question of the morning. As the greatest generation is passing the mantle of leadership to our generation, what will be said of our generation in the years to follow? The greatest generation is passing the mantle of leadership to us. What will be said of us in the generations to follow? If we don't lead, who will? And if we don't lead now, literally, God help us. You don't have to look very far but the headlines to see where we're heading in November. You don't have to look very far to see what what the school districts are doing with with transgender issues, how churches are folding under issues of what's the definition of marriage. Men, if you and I don't stand up and lead, literally, God help us. The greatest generation is passing the mantle of leadership to us. What will be said of us in the days to come? I believe the book of Joshua, that's why I had you open up there, speaks to this idea of leadership. And I want to just cover four quick points this morning on what God expects of his leaders. Before you start in the, the book of Joshua, you have to understand where did Joshua come from? Well, you have to go back to really to Numbers chapter 13. I won't ask you to turn there. I'll briefly describe how Joshua rose to where he is now. Joshua had been the right-hand man to Moses. God's selected leader of the nation of Israel as they came out of Egypt in the Exodus following the Passover. 
And Moses had been going and bringing the nation around, but we know that there was great unbelief in the nation. And they were directing them to to eventually get to the promised land. So Moses, a good leader, thought, before I bring in, who knows how many Moses was leading in the desert, maybe a million, maybe two million people when you include the women and children. But before I bring them into the promised land, I'm going to send 12 spies. And that's what Numbers 13 describes what he did. So he took one man from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he sent them into the promised land, into Israel. And he sent them to come back and bring a report before Moses brings everybody in there into danger and unknown territory. He sends this group of men in there. It's a good strategic move by that leader, Moses. And we know they were in there 30, 40 days, and they came back, and they brought the nation of Israel together, and Moses had them make a report. What did you find? And there's a report given. Actually, there's two reports. There's a majority report and a minority report. And we know that the majority report came before the nation of Israel and Moses and Aaron and all the other leaders and elders. And he said, the land is literally flowing with milk and honey. And here's, here's an, an example. And they carried some fruit and dates and things that they had picked. They said, but there's a problem. There's giants in the land. And when we look at those giants, we feel like we look like grasshoppers. And they said, we recommend that we don't go in that land. Maybe we should go back to, to Egypt. At least there we had three square meals and a place to lay our heads. But then there's a minority report because there's two men that went along with the other ten. Incidentally, by the way, we name our sons Joshua and Caleb. Who knows the names of the other ten men? But Joshua and Caleb decided that there had to be a voice about what else was seen there. And so they, they picked, probably drew straws, and I believe Caleb was the spokesman. He came forward, and the Scripture tells us you have to read between the lines to understand what Caleb's telling us, but he also stands before the nation after the majority report's given. He says, hey, wait a minute. We also went with the other ten, Joshua did with me, and we also helped carry those grapes and those dates back. And yet we saw those giants. And yes, we do look like grasshoppers, but we're God's grasshoppers. And I recommend we go in to the land. And because of the unbelief of all of the men, the other ten, and all of the men of that generation, and Moses and Aaron, not a single man 20 years and over of that generation is enabled to go into the promised land, but for two men, Joshua and Caleb. In fact, the very last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy has God taking Moses up to the top of Mount Nebo, looking into the beautiful promised land and saying, you're not going. Only two men were faithful. Only two men were true leaders. We'll be able to stand up and stand against the tide that was coming at us. Men, the tide is coming at us right now as believers in Jesus Christ. What will be said of our generation in the days to follow? Look what it says in Joshua chapter 1, if you have a Bible with you, because this is where the life of Joshua and the leadership of Joshua and God's picture for leadership is unfolded. The very first couple of verses says, Moses, the servant of the Lord, has died. He hasn't made it in the promised land. And God has now selected Joshua to lead the nation of Israel. Joshua's been the military leader. He's stepping up to be the national leader now. But God is going to prepare him differently for leading the nation of Israel. And men, I believe this is how God wants us to be prepared as leaders. 
Leaders in the community, leaders in the church, leaders in your neighborhood, leaders in the workplace. This is how men are to lead God's way. Look what it says in verses 7, 8, and 9. I'll really just focus on verse 8 right now. God writes to, God speaks to Joshua and says, if you're going to lead for me, this is important. He says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you'll make your way prosperous and then you will have success. He says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. In other words, Joshua, you need to know my law. It appears that the, the, the first five books of the Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were written by Moses and probably by Joshua, who may have been his scribe. So Joshua was familiar with what God was dictating to Moses, was giving him the right all about the Genesis creation account, all about all of the things that happened, the, 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 uh, the world flood, all of that. Joshua was probably writing, but now God's telling him, Joshua, you need to know that. You need to remember my word. You need to know my word. He says, I want you to meditate on it day and night, to be in the word day and night. Meditate on my word, my letter to you, Joshua. The book of the law, he said, shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate it on a day and night. Joshua, I want you to know the word. Men, God wants us to know his word. Amen? He wants us to know his word. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It, the gospel, the word of God, is the power of salvation to all who believe. We need to know the word of God. And then also, that secondly, he says, you need to live it out. He says, be careful to do according to all that is in my word. Not only do we need to know it, but we need to live out the word of God as well. We need to literally live it out. Remember what James said in, in James 1.22, do not just be hearers of the word, but you're to be what? You're to be doers of the word as well. And God says to Joshua, if you're going to lead for me, I want you to know my word and I want you to live it out. And men, that applies right today for us. The world is crumbling around us because they're following a lie. They're following the leader of this world, Satan, and you and I need to know the word if we're going to lead for him. And we must lead. The greatest generation is counting on us. They've laid the bedrock for freedom. They've laid the bedrock for Judeo-Christian society, and they're passing the mantle of leadership to us. We need to know the word, and we need to live it out. But thirdly, you look at, if you have a Bible, look what it says in verse 9. You're very familiar with verse 9. Joshua 1.9 is a very, very familiar verse. God says to Joshua, have I not, keyword commanded, it's a military term, God speaking Joshua's language, have I not commanded you, Joshua? He's telling him, have I not commanded you, Joshua? He's reminding him, Joshua, I want you to know my word. I want you to live it out. But Joshua, as you are leading, never forget that you report to me. Here's your chain of command, God, Joshua, and then the nation of Israel. And men, that's no different for any one of us. You may have risen to the top of CEO of a really big company. You may be the senior pastor of this church. But you know what? We report to God. Amen? We need to know the word. We need to live it out. And we need to remember who we are accountable to, our almighty God. I love the picture in the book of Revelation. When John, the writer of the book, 
chapter 1 tells us. When he finally focuses his eyes in heaven, when he sees the picture he sees of Jesus, and he puts his eyes on him, he immediately falls on his face like a dead man. He's realizing that the Holy One has entrusted me with leadership. And that's what Joshua is being told. Men, you and I need to know the word. We need to live it out. We need to remember that he is in complete control. And what's interesting in verse 10 tells us, then Joshua commanded. Not a moment before, not until he knew the word, not until he was living it out, not until he remembered that God was in control. Verse 10 says, and then Joshua commanded. And by the way, the first thing Joshua did, what a servant leader. He grabbed all of his deputies together and he said, we're about to move. We're about to move the entire nation. Make sure all the people have all the supplies they need. Make sure the people are completely taken care of. When he took over his leadership, he didn't say, what time am I playing golf? Bring around my chariot. Who's got my tea? He said, make sure our people are taken care of. Joshua used to sleep out with the nation of Israel. He would sleep with the, with the troops. He'd sleep with the soldiers because he knew that's what God would have him do, to love on these people, to lead them well. Joshua knew the word. Joshua lived it out. And Joshua never forget that God was in control. If you have your Bible, flip over to Joshua chapter 5. I need to move a little quicker here. Second thing is when you're leading for God, remember this, that wherever God places you, the place that he's got you, the place that he's investing you, and you say, well, you don't know where I work. You don't know where I live. You don't know what my job is. Doesn't matter. The place that God has you, Think of this, that's holy ground. As a leader, the place that God has placed you, that's holy ground. You say, Joyce, you don't understand. I- I'm just a dad, I've got a wife, two kids, and a cat. I'll pray for you if you have a cat. But <laughs> you say, I'm nothing. Or you say, Joyce, you don't understand where I am. I, I mean, I got this huge company. I employ thousands and thousands of people. Almost a billion dollar budget. Wherever you are in that spectrum from A to Z, that's holy ground for you. Joshua knows the word. He's living it out. God's blessing him because he's remembering that God's in control. And they're now taking the promised land. They're going from city to city. They're conquering them. And now they come to this place called Jericho in Joshua chapter 5. They come to this place called Jericho. Joshua, he had watched what Moses did. He said, hey, before I bring my people in the harm way. I'm going to go check it out myself, and that's what he does. So in Joshua chapter 5, we find Joshua standing outside of the city of Jericho. We know later on in the story that the city is fortified with massive walls, and Joshua's standing there by himself, and he's looking at these walls, and he's thinking, what I would do for a cruise missile right about now. But it's not going to happen. And he's trying to think, God, we have such little weapons. We have very little. Look at this fortified city. What are you going to do? He's looking at the thing, thinking, how am I going to take my people in here? And then something miraculous happens at the very end of the chapter. Listen to what it says, unless you can read it in Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 13. It came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. So Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Good question to ask. You find a guy there who's got a weapon and you want to know friend or foe. I need to know that now. Verse 14 says, the man responded, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. 
And Joshua fell to his face to the earth. He bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. Joshua did so. All the kings of the other cities in the nation of Israel that, 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 that are being overrun right now are deathly afraid of Joshua because they know God's on the side. So Joshua's literally the most powerful man on the earth, but some reason Joshua falls on his face, kind of like John in Revelation chapter 1. He's put his eyes on somebody he wasn't expecting. This is what they call the Christophany, a big seminary term. This is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. He appears to Joshua at the walls of Jericho. And Joshua asks the question, Christ has a sword in his hand. He's about to do battle on Joshua and the nation's behalf. And Joshua says, are you with us or against us? And Jesus responds to him. He said, I didn't come here to take sides. I came here to take over. Now take off your sandals. For where you're standing is holy ground. Wait till you see what I'm about to do through you, Joshua. Wait till you see how I'm going to work right through you as the leader of the nation of Israel. Man, I don't know where you are right now. Again, on that spectrum of it's just me and my wife and a dog and a kid. And, or you are really, really got a lot of stuff you're overseeing. But wherever you are on that spectrum, if you know the word, if you're living it out, if you're really yielding to God and accountable to him, where you are is holy ground. Look around and see, God, where are you working here? How can you use me as a leader to impact lives for the kingdom of God? The place you're standing right now, man, is holy ground. Remember that. I had left command of an F-14 squadron out in San Diego. Uh, On the cheese scale, that's a pretty big cheese. And I was making my way across the country driving the family, and I'm going to the Pentagon. 25,000 people at the Pentagon. As a commander in F-14 squadron, you're pretty senior. I was a, a Navy commander in 05. But when you get to the Pentagon, 05s are a dime a dozen. And so, but I'm thinking uh, along the way, I think it was around Route 70, my family's asleep, wife and four kids are asleep in the van, and I'm thinking, you know, they probably heard of me in the Pentagon. You know, flew in the movie Top Gun. I mean, they probably heard of me. So I'm thinking when I get there, I'll probably get a parking place right up close to the building. Maybe even, you know, I'm thinking chairman of the Joint Chiefs, vice chairman, secretary of defense, you know, maybe one or two, Joyce, you know, like maybe in that order right there. How many of you work or have worked at the Pentagon? I was in North Parking Row 72. You could barely see the Pentagon from my parking space. It was like you had to take three shuttles and and a metro to get there. It was depressing. I came into my office. I was working on the joint staff, and I came into the office, and uh, there was an Air Force one-star general, a brigadier general, who welcomed me. He said, hey, Joyce, we heard about you. I'm like, finally, they'll probably move my parking place overnight. He says, come on in. He sits me down, and he says, man, this is a great office. We're doing all these kind of things. we got a Marine Corps guy. we got an Army guy. All the, it was all the joint staff, all the different services working together. And he said, we've got a special job for you, and I'm kind of fixing my thing. Wow. Special job for me, he says, you make the coffee. <laughs> but, but then he kind of stops mid-thought, and he says, wait a minute, that's not right. There's a Marine colonel by the name of George Rector. He makes the coffee, but you've got to come in at 530 and get the water. It's a big urn. You've got to get the water for him. 
I said, General, are you kidding? He goes, not a bit. We love our coffee. See you at 530. <laughs> to this day, I'll be 60 in a couple of weeks. I've not had a sip of coffee in my life. So I walk out, and there's Colonel Rector. Hey, you must be the new guy. See you at 530. I'll make the coffee. You get the water. So the next morning, I got up, came in. Sure enough, there's a big coffee urn there. I took it. I had to go three corridors over in the Pentagon to the janitor's closet because the thing was so tall to fill it up in the, in the wash sink in there. And I'm schlepping this thing back. All the water's coming up. My khakis are wet. I mean, I get to the office. I put it down. At five, it was at 5.30, 5.45, Colonel Rector comes in. Hey, Joyce, thanks for getting the water. I got it from here. Then I went down and sat down and did my devotions. That was depressing, let me tell you. Incredibly depressing. Week after week, I'm going, coming in the morning. I don't even drink coffee, get in the water. My wife keeps saying, hey, how's your day at the Pentagon? She's just an upbeat person. You know, what's God doing with you at the Pentagon? I'm saying, I have no idea. I'm, I'm schlepping water for guys that drink coffee. I was really getting angry, and I was trying to do my devotions. Well, it got later in the year, and it was right about time of Easter, and I'm going through all the Gospels to just see the accounts of um, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and I'm working through the Gospel of John, and I'm in John chapter 13. I just slept the water. I'm all still all wet. I'm doing my devotions, waiting for my shirt to dry. And I'm reading through John chapter 13, and it's, and it's about the Last Supper. And Jesus, you know, two of his disciples have been fighting. You know, who's going to sit closest to him in heaven? You know, they, they're looking like for their parking place independent. So who's going to be sit closest to him? And the Scripture just talks about, the way John writes it, that Jesus didn't say anything, but he got up and he went and fetched an urn of water. And with his own cloak as a towel, he got down before these men, and he began to wash their feet. And you think about that. He, he got to Peter, the one that would deny him. Thomas, the one that would doubt him. Moving across the twelve, eventually he got to Judas, the one that would betray him. And I was convicted instantly. And it's like God pulled the curtain back and said, this is why I have you at the Pentagon. To serve these men like I served my own disciples and fetched water. A week later, I got promoted. No, not to captain. That was about another two years. But Colonel Rector left, and I now became the coffee maker. <clears throat> so a, a, new, a younger Army guy comes in, and same thing. He's walking in looking for his parking spot at the Pentagon. He comes in. The general, same general, sits him in. I'm listening to the conversation now. Hey, we've got a special job for you. And the guy's like, yeah. He goes, you make the coffee. And then the, the Colonel General says, ah, actually, that's not right. Joyce makes the coffee. You got to come in and get the water. Well, this guy comes out of the office like this. I said, you know, he comes out. He goes, you must be Joyce. I said, I am. I said, I tell you what, friend, though. I said, you don't have to come in. I'm going to get the water, and I'm going to make the coffee. And I don't even drink coffee. I went out and bought the best Starbucks coffee I could ever find. My wife helped me. And I realized because I was not just making coffee for these men in the office. God brought me to the Pentagon to make coffee, and I was now making coffee for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I was using that as an opportunity to wash their feet, 
Man, I don't know where God has you, but as a leader, the place that God has you, wherever you're plugged in, your small family, your mega company, that's holy ground. Take off your moccasins. Put them aside your desk and realize, God, this is what you brought me here for as a leader. This is holy ground. How will you use me here? I want to know your word. I want to live for you. I really want to serve you right here. Wherever God's got you, man, that's holy ground. Serve well. Keep moving to the right. Joshua chapter 7. Wherever we are, wherever God's given us to lead, we need to love those people, believers or not. If they're only members of the world and not members of the church, it doesn't matter. Whoever God's given us to lead, we need to love them with great compassion and great consistency. Great compassion and great consistency. Because God has given us to love them and to lead them into the kingdom. So we need to love them like we never loved them before, but we need to be consistent to the Word of God. No compromising on anything. This is the holy Word of God. We can't compromise on it. We know that they, they continue to, they obliterated the city of Jericho, Joshua, under his leadership. Marching around and screaming and yelling and the walls fall down. They still teach that at West Point. I'm kidding. So... <clears throat> So then they go to these other cities, and one city they went to by the name of Ai, spelled A-I. They go there, and Joshua says, it's a small city. I sent just a couple of guys out. They get obliterated. And what had happened was when they went into the city of Jericho, God told Joshua, don't have anybody. This city is so unholy that everything must be destroyed. Don't let anybody take anything to sell on eBay later. None of that stuff. Leave it all behind. Well, one guy named Achan stole something. And he hid it in his tent. And as a result of the unholiness in Joshua's camp, they began to struggle in their conquest of the nation of Israel. And God helps Joshua find who the guy is. And they bring Achan before Joshua. And Joshua's got him before the nation of Israel. Joshua's lost a number of people as a result of Achan's sin. And Joshua brings Achan before him. Joshua chapter 7 records the discussion. So Joshua brings Achan before him. You know, when I was commanding officer my squadron, I I had some sailors that did some dumb things in port, and you got to discipline them. And that's a hard thing to do sometimes because you really, really love these guys. But you have to teach them a lesson. You have to do that. You have to abide by the uniform code of military justice. You have to do it. It's hard, but you must do it. I could see it was hard for Joshua because when he has Achan standing before him, he could throw the book at him and just obliterate him. But listen to what he says to him. Joshua said to Achan, verse 19 of chapter 7, My son, B'nai. That's what it is in Hebrew, B'nai. For Joshua to say to Achan, my son. Number one, a Jewish man would not say that. A Hebrew man would not say that to a man unless it was his son and unless it was his firstborn son. So he loved the people that were under his leadership as if they were his own children, as if each one of them was a firstborn son. That's the passion Joshua had for the people that he led. He says, Achan, my son. This was killing Joshua. Tell me what you have done. And Achan opens up and admits everything he has done. It would have been easier for Joshua just to say, okay, don't do that again. But God had told Joshua, anybody that does that, anybody that violates my law, you're to take them out, 
And you're to take them and their family and stone them and burn them. That's the holiness of God. And there's some things in Scripture we don't understand. And you look at my Bible, I have some question marks. I don't understand, but I understand fully the holiness of God. And when God says, this is what we must do, then we must do it as leaders. And Joshua did love this man with great compassion, but he was consistent to the Word of God, and he took Achan out and lost his whole family. Men, have you had to make some difficult calls sometime in leadership? Have you had to take a stand that's just not popular in the culture? If you haven't, you will. Just give it a few months. The squadron that I was leading, I had been selected to go to this squadron because of some significant moral failures of leaders prior in that squadron. Some of you may remember back in the early 90s, there was something that happened in naval aviation called the tailhook scandal. An incredible black eye to not only all of aviation, but specifically to the fighter community, my community. And many of the commanding officers were relieved for lack of confidence in their ability or for moral failures. And I was hand-selected because my assignment officer knew that I was a believer in Jesus Christ. He was not a believer in Jesus Christ, but he knew I was, and he knew I had high morals, and he sent me to help unscrew the squadron. And so we left on deployment, and right before we left on deployment, I had gotten the whole squadron together in the station movie theater, the movie theater on base out in Naval Air Station Miramar in San Diego. And my guys, I had been with them for about a year and a half, and they knew I loved them. I mean, Friday was cupcake day. My wife and kids would come in with cupcakes and serve the whole squadron. We would do as much as we can to love on these guys. So right before we left, I brought them all together with their families. I had all the family members sit on this side of the theater and all my troops sit on this side. And I spoke to the families and I just said, you know how much I love these guys. And they did. Many of the family members I, I knew very well. They knew how much we loved them. And I said, we're leaving in three days for about an eight-month deployment. To the best of my ability, I'll bring all of them home. That was never a guarantee. It's a dangerous place on the flight deck of an aircraft carrier. I said, to the best of my ability, I'll bring your men home. And hopefully I'll bring them encouraged and changed. That's all I said and left. Three days later, we had left on deployment. We had a a meeting of the officers, which is all of the aviators, about 35. And then we sat in the ready room, uh, which is our briefing and debriefing room on the carrier. And I sat there with them and... And I went through some administrative things and talked about some philosophies of leadership. And then I threw the hand grenade in the middle of the room. And I said, when we go into port overseas, and we made a couple of port visits, I said, let me tell you right now. I know it's been common practice in your squadron history before that you guys all took your wedding rings off and locked them up. And that what you did in port stayed in port. Like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What you did in port, nobody told your wives and girlfriends. I tell you what, if it comes to my attention that any one of you are cheating on your wives or your girlfriends, any one of you, and you're going to go home. You'll pay your own way home. You'll go home early from deployment. You'll pay your way home, and then you can tell your family why you came home early. Well, you could have heard a pin drop in that room. Shortly after that, I dismissed the meeting, and they got up and left, and One young lieutenant was brave enough to come up to me and say, hey, Skipper, they call you Skipper when you're the commanding officer. Hey, Skipper, can I speak frankly with you? And he said, I said, sure, go ahead. He said, you're an idiot, a complete idiot. Well, I wasn't expecting that frankness, but. (laughs) I gave him permission. He said, you can't dictate your morals on us. 
And I said, let me, let me just say something very clearly. I said, number one, adultery in the military is against the law. It's against the Uniform Code of Military Justice. It's punishable by six months in prison, loss of pay, and you can lose two ranks. I said, so I just want to let you know it is against the law. But secondly, more important than that, you made a commitment one day, those of you who are married, you stood before a priest or a pastor, a host of witnesses, and most importantly, Almighty God, and you made a vow. You took a pledge. You would love this woman. And her alone, as long as you both shall live, you took a vow. And if I can't trust you to uphold that vow, how could I trust you with issues of national security and top-seeking information that could affect not only you and your wife and kids, but billions of people? How could I do that? I said, you'll be the first to go if you violate it. Well, for about three weeks, they avoided me like a plague. It was really awful. I mean, we were transiting to, we got actually redirected to North Korea. We were transiting up there, and we finally got to the North Korean operating area, and we were leading these missions, that's all I can tell you, in and around North Korea. And they had to respond to me because I was leading them most of the missions. And we kind of got back to normal. By the way, the women back home had heard what had happened. And every port we went into, man, these guys were as clean as a whistle. But here's the interesting thing. After eight months, we came back. This is not about me. This is what we're called to do as leaders. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, Those that are separated from God, those that are perishing, the truth of God is foolishness to them. They don't understand it, but you know what? They're still held accountable to it. And so eight months later, when we came back, two days before Christmas, and I led this big... 10-plane F-14 formation into San Diego, landing at Naval Air Station Miramar. It was cool. It was the coolest thing. <laughs> Sound of freedom just coming over. I came in and landed, and before I went and saw my family, I went and greeted each guy as they came out of their airplane. I just shook their hand. and said, hey, on behalf of a, a grateful nation, I want to thank you for serving your country. Now, welcome home and have a great Christmas with your family. Well done. Well, every one of these guys, nobody would do it publicly, but every one of these guys drew me in. They said, Hey, I just want to thank you for holding me accountable. Nobody's ever held me accountable. Nobody's ever shown that to me before. One guy said, this is the first time in seven deployments I'm not coming home with venereal disease. Men, we're to love the men that God's given us with great compassion, but great consistency, if you know God. Matt, I got one more point, and I'll close with that. I know we're right at the mark. Last thing I would say, men, and it's all the way at the very end of Joshua chapter 24, is that we need to be men who are focused on leaving a godly legacy. The greatest generation has passed the mantle of leadership to us. We need to leave a godly legacy. We see that at the end of Joshua's life in Joshua chapter 24. Joshua did everything God had commanded him to do. He took the nation of Israel, brought all those people in, crossing the Jordan, conquering the different people in there, settled the tribes. He did everything God asked him to do. In fact, if Joshua had been a me person, it's all about him, at the end of his life, he would have brought the nation together, maybe a chest full of ribbons, pat himself on the back and say, it's all about me, but we see none of that. Joshua's focusing all of their attention on God. 
I was the leader, but God was the centerpiece right here. And here's interesting. Joshua even tells the nation of Israel, he says, I tell you what, folks, it really is all about God. I was just God's man at this time. I mean, I was just a guy that God was using. But, you know, it's all about God. But Joshua gave them an option and said, I tell you what, verses 14 and 15 say, you can still go ahead and serve the gods of your forefathers. Remember those gods you served back when you were enslaved in Egypt? Go ahead, serve those gods. You go back and serve those gods. I tell you what, though, me and my house... We're going to serve the Lord. I started that way, and I'm going to finish that way. Here's the truth of a man who's consistent in leadership. Here's the the proof in the pudding right here. Look at verse 31 if you have your Bible. Verse 31. To me, this is probably the most important verse in the entire book of Joshua because it speaks to the value of one man, one man who decided he was going to lead God's way. Here's what it says. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. So what this is saying is one man, Joshua, remember only two men from his whole generation, everybody 20 years and older die, including Moses and Aaron, except for Joshua and Caleb. So what this is telling us is Joshua and Caleb and their generation, who's left only the women in that generation, but he made elders after that, and those elders led people. So now we have Joshua's generation... He's leading these elders, and the elders are leading other people. One man is affecting two entire generations of people. One man who decided to lead God's way. One man who decided to do it only the way God showed in his word. Joshua is leading God's way. He's designed to leave a legacy. That's what Joshua does. That's what a leader does. That's what a leader does. He knows God's word. He lives it out. He remembers he's accountable to God. The holy ground is where God has him serving. The people that God has him leading, he loves them with great compassion and great consistency. And he is focused on leaving a legacy in his business, in his community, in his church, and most importantly, in his family. One man, two entire generations are following after God. Men, who's following after God as a result of you? The greatest generation is passing the mantle of leadership to us. It's passed to us. What will they say about us in the years to come? May God help us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the consistency and the accuracy of your error-free word. We thank you for this picture that we have of Joshua in leading the nation of Israel. We thank you, Lord, that you taught him how to lead. Father, we come before you, men, empty-handed, bare, naked before you and say, teach us. God, teach us to lead. We want to know you. We want to be in your word. We want to follow you. God, these are difficult times for our nation. Maybe men are struggling even in their business or family here. So we need your help. We want to lead well. Would you bless us, Lord? Would Would you use us? Not for our glory, not that we would ever get any credit. But that like John in Revelation, we would fall before you and say, holy are you. Thank you for using me. We pray all this in Christ's name. All God's men said, amen. Amen.